This is the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, featuring talks and conversations recorded live by the Public Programs Department of California Institute of Integral Studies, a nonprofit university in San Francisco. To find out more about CIIS and public programs like this one, visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs. It's wonderful to be um, together tonight, Molly, and I'm so looking forward to this conversation. Welcome. I'm glad to be here with you, Nikki. Mm. So let's have some fun, and I'm so personally looking forward to learning from you tonight. Um, the, the book that I've been reading this past week, A Good Apology, um, is a really important book. Um, not just for individuals, but for our society at this time, as it will become clear through our conversation. So thank you for writing it, and thank you for making yourself available for this conversation tonight. So let me start by asking you, I'd love to know what drew you to the topic of, of apologies. Thank you. That's a great question. I, I think it's because... In my work with people, I saw, I still see a lot of hurt that isn't healed, that could be healed. So it's unnecessary pain, and that leads to the loss of relationships and all kinds of other problems and disappointments. Um, and, and it seems wasteful. You know, we lose connections that we could keep. So I'm interested in repair. Hmm. So uh, I hear the, the sense of the wastefulness that you've seen in, in terms of the, the, the relationships that could be repaired. So uh, an interest in repairing. So, so what? So I guess that leads really to the second question, which is, um, love to hear in your words what, why apologizing is important. Why apologize? Right. It's, it's a very powerful thing for something so small. Um, the first thing it does is heal the person who's been hurt, right? It's about addressing harm that someone else has experienced. Um, but aside from that, it helps the relationship enormously. After a good apology, people feel closer to each other. They communicate better. They understand each other better. And they feel differently about their relationship. There's a kind of relationship esteem boost uh, where now I know that my relationship can handle something hard and come out on the other side, so I'm less afraid of what might come up next. And, and that's a real strengthening of a relationship. For the person who makes the apology, there are also great benefits. You know, when you face something that you've done wrong or some harm that you've caused, um, you feel better. It's an unburdening of uh, an unhappy weight. And uh, there's some science that you actually feel um, that you experience more oxytocin in your system. You can't identify it as oxytocin, but there is more. And that is a, um, a substance that goes along with attachment. So it, it promotes your uh, connection to your relationship and makes you feel better. Mm. 
Um, morally, you might feel better too, but you definitely feel better in terms of your relationship. And we need relationships. We need them for our health and happiness and longevity. So I'm hearing um, one importance of um, apologizing is not just to the relationship itself, <clears throat> but really to the person who apologizes. So it mm -hmm. serves as a motivation because there's there's advantages for actually the unburdening feeling better for having made a repair. So it feels like the 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 conflict, the unresolved conflict sits in one's heart perhaps as as a dead weight. So that res resolution I'm hearing you uh, say is a sense of ah, release, relief, um, right. a weight that has been carried. Yeah. Right, and it's not only... That's that the hurt person carries it carries a weight, which we, which we know and recognize, but also the the harmer or the hurter does, if he or she's aware of it. Yeah, mm -hmm. very interesting that you're pointing that out. So basically, both people are carrying a weight, different amounts of weights, <clears throat> perhaps given both uh, the what kind of harm has been done and their awareness of it. How aware and mindful of Uh, are, are, are there interactions, the, the emotional weight, um, um, the, the, their emotions in general? So it seems like it has benefit for both parties and as well as not just in terms of their, their relief and release, but as you're pointing out, health benefits, um, connection benefits, psychological benefits, because connections are so Indeed. important to us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Indeed. Everybody wins. Hmm. So, so if, if everyone wins, so, well, I want to ask you, so, so actually other questions, but first I want to actually um, get into the, the substance of the conversation pretty early on, which is to ask you to, if you would kindly walk us through the four steps um, that you lay out in your book. Okay, great. Step one is... Um, is not about saying anything. It's not about saying, I'm sorry. It's about listening. Step one doesn't have anything to do with you as the apologizer. It doesn't have to do with your intentions or what a heck of a nice person you are or the history that led you to behave the way you behaved. It's only about learning to understand the other person's hurt. And as such, it's the base on which everything else is built for a good apology. But it's a really hard thing for most of us to do. Um, in general, we don't want to hear about things that we may have done that were mistakes or that hurt someone and or that disconfirm the way we think of ourselves. Um, and so we resist and most of us are quite defensive. If we can get past that and find a way to accept our uh, mistake or failing of, of sorts, then... Um, then we can proceed. And having done a good step one, um, you, one's able to do step two, which is to make a sincere statement of regret and responsibility and empathy. And then you know what it is you're actually apologizing for. You know, sometimes we say, I'm sorry, before we really know the extent of what happened or, or what we're supposedly sorry about. Um, and that's what people usually mean when they say, make an apology. They mean step two. In my, in my view, all four steps are necessary. And um, step three 
is um, making restitution, making reparations, making up for the harm that was done. In law, that means um, restoring someone to financial wholeness. And in relationships, it's usually not uh, material. If it is material, it's more symbolic. Um, often it's uh, you know a replacement of something that was lost or damaged. It could be material in that way. But more often, it's a do-over. It's a chance to get it right when you didn't get it right the first time. And that seems really corny to people at first because it's, you know, awkward and, you know, uh, deliberate. And, uh, but it's actually remarkably powerful. And, and people tell lovely stories about those things working out for them. Um, step four is uh, making sure that the hurt doesn't ever recur. It's setting up systems or changing the circumstances that produce the first hurt so that it won't happen again. And that's, um, that's the thing that people often forget, right? So then you say, well, I, they said they were sorry, but then they did the same thing again. And in my view, they didn't complete the first apology or they wouldn't have done it again because it, you must not, right, if at all possible. So it's a, it's a pretty big process. It's, and uh, maybe I should have called it making amends um, because it's, it's substantial. So um, it would be wonderful if you would share with us um, an example either from um, your own life or, or from one of, um, uh, one of the examples in your book that, that you talk about to, to illustrate how the, the four steps kind of work, really. Um, we, that would be lovely. Well, I can tell you a story from my life that is in the book um, about the beginning of an apology, and 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 it illustrates how hard it is. Um, uh, my sibling uh, told me um, that he had avoided me for a while because of something that he said I did that hurt him. And I, I was of the opinion that he was wrong, that I had not done that thing. And therefore, uh, he didn't have any right to be mad at me or hurt by me, I guess. Um, and so I reacted very defensively and, you know, got off the phone quickly. And then there followed a series of text messages back and forth, which were not pleasant. And, um, and it went on like that for a while. And and, and here I was in the middle of writing a book <laughs> about how to make an apology, but I was feeling very defensive and, um, you know, counter-accusing. And um, it took me a while, but I, I decided I was going to try to do step one, even though it did not sit well with me. And so I called him back and took responsibility for what I thought I could take responsibility for, which was my reaction in the conversation. And said, I, I, I reacted very badly, and um, so I didn't really get to hear about what you were trying to tell me about. And I want to know. So would you please, you know, would you be willing to try again to tell me about the effect that um, what you think I did had on you. And it was, you know, I had to slip in that what you think I did. Um, but I think that probably was a little bit ungracious of me. Um, 
And and he was very willing to tell me and about how hard a time it had been and for the for the whole family it was a complicated family situation and um and I was able to hear that and of and of course what happened for me is what happens for almost everybody which is when I hear about the pain of someone I care about I soften right because I I that touches me I care about that I feel it um and so then I I I also asked what was it that made you think I did that thing. Um, and he told me, and I could, uh, could kind of see what he was talking about, although it still wasn't accurate, and, um, and tried to find a way that I could uh, express regret for the edge of what I did that hit him in the wrong way, do you know? And, um, and I meant it, you know, that was a real, that was a real uh, regret. And and then there followed more conversation, and we, you know, established kind of a a regular uh, time to speak with each other about things, and to try to keep each other sort of on, uh, keep each other honest when there's a reaction the other person is having, so we don't have to wait a long time till later, you know, to deal with it. Um, so it was a it was a good process by the end, but I was not good at it at all in the beginning. It was very hard. Thanks for, for sharing that story, that, that story from your own life, that examples. And, and, and it sounds like the step one might be the hardest. Um, so is, is that true? Or, or what, what step would you say is the hardest one? I think step one is the hardest. It, it's hard because it requires a, it's not impossible. But it requires a shift in perspective. It, it requires a decision, I, usually, to shift from my perspective to the other person's. And, and many of us are not good at that. You know, our culture isn't good at that. And um, we're, not, we're not accustomed to listening. We're not, a, we're not as comfortable being receptive as we are being active, most of us. And... Um, and we really hate the thought that we made a mistake or did something wrong. And so there's, you know, you know um, actually doing that and facing something clear-eyed is, uh, requires a kind of self-compassion, which I think you know a lot about and much more than I do about. Um, but it, but it, to me, it's an antidote to shame and, um, you know, inaction and that kind of souring regret and despair. Mm. Uh, yeah, thanks for bringing up self-compassion, which is a topic that's dear to my heart, and and I teach and practice. And and um, as we were connecting the other day, and I was mentioning that actually, yes, there are studies, and I found the studies that that um, suggest that people who are more compassionate to themselves. Um, they um, they take more responsibility for for the wrong that they have done. Uh, there's one study where they primed you know about a hundred Berkeley students and they did this study and and it turned out that um, when people are less harsh on themselves and and they're kinder to to themselves, more compassionate, then they do less finger pointing actually instead of oh uh, it's it was their fault, but actually like oh yeah. Yeah, I screwed up. 
I screwed up. They take more, uh, yeah, more responsibility, which is, which in some ways makes sense. You would think it's counterintuitive because if you're really kind yeah. to yourself, then you become a couch potato and, and, you know, <laughs> you just yeah. like, oh yeah, you, you self-aggrandize, but it's actually the other way around when you're more compassionate and kind to yourself, then as you were saying, there's less shame um, because you're, you're it's okay. It's it's you're holding yourself. St- you still love yourself, even though you screwed up. So you can own up to having screwed up. Um, exactly. And there's a there's a thing that psychologists like to talk about, which is the difference between shame and guilt. I I don't know if that's so. So tell um, us, tell us, please. So guilt. Some people say that guilt is feeling bad about something that you've done, and. Shame is feeling bad about who you are. And um, that's an oversimplification, but I think it, it stands in for it's close enough. And the thing about guilt is that it's it can be a very productive feeling because it can drive you to fix something that you feel responsible for. It's how it's it's how you know you're a good person because you feel bad when you do something bad, you know, it's your conscience. And shame, on the other hand, is very there's that word again, wasteful emotion, because it um, restricts us, it makes us turn inward, it makes us less likely to act or approach or repair. And so they're quite different. Yeah, thanks for uh, highlighting and really discriminating between those two emotions. So, so it sounds to me like anything that supports one to um, experience remorse and guilt with a sense of conscience um, and not feel ashamed, not feel like I'm a bad person, um, not make a char- character um, uh, designation, but just my behavior was bad. So, so, so uh, a um, thinking about the, you know, uh, really ascribing the behavior uh, to have been a mistake. Um, so anything that helps someone to make that distinction and not, not fall into the trap of shame and feeling unworthy and small and awful and a bad person, etc., cetera, uh, then that might be supportive in actually taking the first step to listening because uh, that might shift the perspective. Um, Indeed. Are there other things that can support this hardest step, people stepping from, um, oh, it's all your fault. No, I didn't do anything wrong. To, oh, let me listen. Is there, are, are there other things that you've seen in your practice and, and your experience that can support people in that? Uh, the, there, there are some um, research data about our uh, inability to see our mistakes. You know, just cognitively, perceptually, we don't, we don't, um, we, we make many, many mistakes visually and we're subject to optical illusions and we're really pretty darn bad at knowing it, when it knowing when we've made a mistake. And um, there's a hilarious book called Being Wrong, Adventures in the Margin of Error <laughs> by a woman named Catherine Schultz, a journalist. That's great. It's full of mistakes. It's all the, all kinds of mistakes that people make. And, and we tend not to see things that we don't expect to see. You know, you see it if you believe it rather than believing it if you see it. Um, so if you, if you know that, that this I'm getting back to your question. If you know that about yourself as a human and that's how you're wired, then it behooves you to be aware that you don't know the whole story. 
You might know your experience, but you really don't know the whole story about what the other person experienced in any kind of conflict. And um, it's like driving. You know, you have a blind spot. I have a blind spot. And it's, it's behind my shoulder over there. And since I know that in my car, I have to take it into account or I'll have accidents. So we have blind spots about our impact on other people. We're, we're really bad at seeing it and knowing it. And most people in a workplace or, you know, less, uh, less close relationships won't tell us. We have to ask them. I think you have to ask. I love that. I love the way you put that, that just, just to, to invite this sense of humility for us just to take it for granted that, yep, we have blind spots and we, we don't always see the impact we have on other people and that all of us have blind spots and that's just the way it is instead of feeling ashamed or not, that, that there's something wrong with us because we made a mistake or we didn't see. No, we all have blind spots. So I so appreciate you normalizing yeah. that. Yeah, let, let me listen. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's wonderful. I'll, I'll, I'll remember that. So it seems like that can really help shift one's perspective into one of humility and listening. Tell me, what is my blind spot? How did I harm you? How did I hurt you without intending to? Um, that's in any other things that might support someone shift into uh, this. Um, a related idea that comes up in um, transformational conflict literature is um, to speak as if you're right, but listen as if you're wrong. That's the same idea as the humility that you're talking about, you know, being open. And I think humble curiosity is really valuable in lots of settings, but especially in this kind of attempt to repair something between people. I, I love that. Would you say that one more time? Speak. You may speak as if you're correct, as if you're right, but listen as if you're wrong. Nice. So it was a sense of clarity, confidence, stability in one, one's own understanding, but yet listening with humility and curiosity and not mm. knowing. Lovely. Thank you for that also, that, that hint. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so it seems like if we really listen, as you were pointing out, if we really um, do the first step <clears throat> of listening and, and things that would support one, is as we discussed, one is um, self-compassion to to not think that one uh, to, to to hold oneself with kindness and compassion, and also to distinguish between um, um, shame um, and not fall into shame, but have a sense of remorse and regret. So that, and as well as just having a stance of humility that you have blind spots, just just assume that everybody has blind spots. So, so hopefully those will support one's shift in perspective uh, to be open to listening, reaching out and listening. And as you were pointing out in the beautiful example that, that you shared with you and your brother while writing the book, um, listening to someone that you care about, um, even if you don't care about them, but it's another human being who just like you wants to be happy and doing their best, someone who's, who's, who feels hurt, then it sounds like naturally your heart will be open to an, an apology that would be sincere and meaningful. That's, mm -hmm. It, mm -hmm. the, sure. 
are, are there th ways perhaps uh, to support um, uh, the second step? Any nuances in the second step that people should keep in mind? Well, there are lots of ways to do it badly. And, uh, <laughs> and I have a list of them in the book. Um, one of them is to say, I'm sorry, but... <laughs> Because whatever you say after the but negates the I'm sorry. It, it's, it takes away from the open-hearted regret and responsibility. You know, um, and it could be, uh, you could say things in a passive voice. I'm sorry about um, how that was done to you. Or, or, or vaguely, I'm, I'm sorry about the things that happened. Um, or... I'm sorry that you feel that I did that. Um, there was a public one recently. Uh, Representative Yoho um, said some harsh words to Representative Ocasio-Cortez. And then he, he stood on the floor of the House of Representatives and made his apology. And um, he, he did say one thing that was kind of like an apology. He, he said, I'm sorry. I apologize for introducing strife to the already contentious House of Representatives or Congress. Um, but then he said, um, I didn't say the things that the reporters say that I said. And, um, and if they think, if they misconstrued it, then I'm sorry for their misunderstanding. <laughs> so that's a bad way to say it. <laughs> It's, it starts off like he's saying, I'm sorry, but the sentence turns on its head halfway through and it becomes something else. Indeed. <laughs> wow. Yes. Um, and so, so it also seems like um, as, as you're talking about it, you know, there is this understanding of intention and impact. Um, oh, yeah. So... You're, oh, yeah, it's very meaningful, so I'll just hand it to you. Yeah, <laughs> They're not the same. People feel like they're the same. If I didn't mean to hurt you, you can't be hurt. You know, and it's just not so. It's not so in personal relationships. It's not so in social justice encounters. Um, it, you know, intention is important, but it is not important in the beginning of an apology, and it's not as important as the impact on another person. So, so how would, uh, about the second step, a good apology, um, a sincere apology that doesn't have the buts and, and I'm sorry for how you, f how you feel, I, whatever. Uh, wh mm -hmm. What would a clean one sound like, really, and a sincere one? You um, well, well, I give scripts in the book. After each step, a chapter about a step, there's a, there's a, box with scripts. Um, but of course, if it's a sincere statement, then it, it doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't really match a script that I wrote, you know. Um, but you could say something like, um, I, I now see that what I did hurt you. And I, I am so sorry I hurt you. I, I, it breaks my heart. I wish I hadn't. It's different than saying, I'm sorry you were hurt. Right? It's really different. It's simple and it goes straight to the heart. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for that. 
while we're on the steps, I want to ask you about the third one, nuances of making restoration. Well, I like to talk about reparations in this regard <laughs> because um, reparations for slavery, for example, are um, part of the apology, the overdue apology that I think white Americans owe Americans of color. And, um, and it's, a, it's a real verifiable action that could be taken. And there is a law, a bill, uh, House Rule, House HR 40, um, that's, that's closer than it's ever been to becoming a law. And it would be um, just, a, it just proposes studying the effectiveness and what steps would be necessary to make good reparations. So there's something that people can support if they want to take an action toward reparations in that direction. Um, I have a friend who, who likes to tell the story about the time they forgot her husband's birthday and he came home all grumpy and out of sorts and she didn't she was kind of irritated by him she didn't know why he was so grumpy and she didn't realize until the next day that it had been his birthday and everybody had forgotten it the whole family so then a few days later they started a week of dad days and every single day they they made his favorite food and everybody got him a little present and did little goofy celebration things and um he, he says it's his favorite birthday. So sometimes when you make up for something, it actually gets better than it would have been the first time. It's not, it's not like you wish you'd made a mistake, but fixing it well can be, you know, a delight for the other person and for you. It can be a, a really nice experience that's shared of recreating something good. That sounds lovely. I, I love mm. this idea that actually a, a really skillful and and heartfelt repair can actually even be better for a relationship than had it been not done at all. The, the hurt had never happened at all. For, for making reparations, uh, restoration, um, would it be helpful to also ask the other person or would it be considered emotional labor to ask them or do you, what, what do you recommend in that case? It's a good question. Yeah. I, I think it's often, um, it's often possible to do it collaboratively, you know, partly because the other person knows what might make it up for them, you know, and it might not be your first thought. You might be wrong at first. So I think it's good to, to check at least but I do think it's not fair to make them have to figure it out if, if you could, you know, as you suggest, unfair emotional labor. You know, not only were you hurt, but now you have to fix it, figure out how to fix it too. Yeah. So collaboratively, that sounds good. So, so with, with the fourth step, uh, making sure that it doesn't happen again, I'd love to hear more about that in different contexts. Well, let's say... There's a, there's a couple in the book um, where um, one of the partners made the other one late to his aunt's retirement occasion, and he was going to give a toast, and he was too late to do it, and he was very disappointed. And, um, you know, for a while, they, they talked about it as the, the, the first partner said he was sorry, and, um, but it didn't go away. You know, the hurt was still there. And 
Um, so when they finally talked about it and figured out about restitution, the one who had made made his partner late came up with some really lovely suggestions about how to make up for this event um, for the aunt, you know, how to cook her, maybe they could cook her favorite foods or they could get this room, special room in her favorite restaurant or, and he could still deliver his toast or, or, um, you know, some other possibilities of, of do-overs. But then for step four, they talked about syncing their calendars in a different way and making sure that um, this habit of being late and making the other person late wouldn't have such a big impact on his beloved. You know, it was a, it was a problem. It was a recurring problem. And, um, and they, they set up a system of how many times uh, his partner was allowed to remind him um, because if you reminded him too many times, then it's nagging and nagging isn't effective, right? It's counter, it goes the wrong direction. So, so they set up some administrative systems to prevent it from happening again, because good intentions are not enough. Hardly ever are they enough. They're, they're really good, but they're not enough to make habit change for most people about most things. I appreciate that. So, so, about changing systems, actually, so that something doesn't happen again. Um, nice. And and I also realized that the word that you had used earlier was restitution. And I think as, as you were speaking, I wrote it down so quickly, so I had restoration. But it was actually restitution you were talking about, not restoration. <laughs> but, but we also talked about restorative justice, uh, which is sort right. of a restoration. And so I can see that that, you know, may have overlapped the, the two words kind of merged into yeah, one for me yeah yeah nice so so um so i want to ask you about a complicated situation if i may okay since, since, since we're talking about you know it's already huh? so so let's talk about so how about let's say um person a did something unintentionally to hurt person b and person B felt really hurt and they reacted so negatively and so badly that they actually hurt person A far more than person A had ever hurt person B. So, so there is now this complicated situation. So what would you recommend if person A came to you who had caused the original harm and said, hey, I have this complicated situation. So what would you what would you recommend to person A, given the complexities <laughs> of the hurt and yes. wanting closure? Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah, gosh, that's hard, right? Yeah. Um, I, You're the I, expert, so I would love to I think, know. <laughs> we, we all want to know. We want to learn from you because it happens in the real world, it right? It does. In any relationship that's lasted over a substantial amount of time, both people have had opportunities to be hurt, right? And often somebody's, somebody's uh, hurt to the other person, is they think, is just reacting to the way the person hurt them. You know, they don't think they started it. Nobody thinks they started it. And um, so, so let's just say that it's a, it could be a, a kind of a given. If, if there's an ongoing problem between two people, both people feel hurt by the other person. So you could wait for the other person to make an apology to you, um, and they may. You know, or you could ask them to, and they may. Person A could ask person B, would you apologize to me, please, because you owe me one for what you did. Um, 
But person A might get further <laughs> if he or she were willing to apologize first. Because often what happens after a full good apology process is then the other person gets to go. You know, it's turn-taking, right? If person A apologized for the, the unintentional hurt, now, now they know about it, right? So um, they can apologize for the harm they caused, the hurt they caused, and do whatever's necessary to follow through on that and all the steps. Um, I probably should ask first, though, let me just say, for step one. They probably should ask first so they understand for sure all the ways because they may not be aware of the enormity of the impact on the other person, and they just think the person way overreacted, but maybe they didn't, and maybe it won't seem like that when they learn the whole story. Um, and then at the end, if everything is resolved about that, then person A could say, I, I wonder if you could make an apology to me. Do you want to know how you affected me? Beautiful. So so thank you for that. Um, as, as you talk about, it doesn't seem so complicated. I mean, it is complicated, of course, in, in real life. But, but, but I appreciate the way you're laying it out to actually, you know, person A could, could um, listen and go through making an apology and amends. And then at the end, say, uh, ask for an apology. Uh, would you, uh, or maybe invite the other person, would you like to hear how you impacted me through this? Um, so it's an invitation yes. to actually reverse. Lovely. Yes. Yeah. Thank you for that. Yeah. So, so, so now I would love to hear if you, if you would, because apologies seem, um, so helpful and so, um, well, whole, holistic, whole making for, for the relationship, for the, for the two people. And also they seem a little challenging the first step as we talked about, but there, there are many myths about apologies that are in your book that, that I think would be helpful for for us to hear about and and, and um, maybe not believe them. Would you would you tell us about them, please? About, about yeah, about them. Sure. Yes. Um, well, one really big one is that an apology is a sign of weakness. In our culture, um, you know, there's a model of strength that is, you know, a rugged individualist and uh, independent and completely self-confident and, and no, nary a doubt about oneself or one's actions. And that person uh, isn't likely to be wondering whether they had an impact on someone else, right? It's not the same kind of um, stance in the world. And so for many people, and, uh, and in our culture that applies more to men, there's more pressure on men to, to follow that model than there is on women, um, asking someone if you hurt them or trying to make it right feels like a sign of weakness. People don't want to give in. They don't want to be the one who is softer, right? On the contrary, I think making an apology takes a lot of courage. It's a very strong thing to do, but it isn't forceful strong. You know, it's quiet strong. So I don't think it's a sign of weakness, but I do think many people do think that. Um, another one is the old movie tagline that love means never having to say you're sorry. <laughs> you remember that movie? Oh, yeah. Um, I'm old enough to remember that movie. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, I think 
if if a relationship is worth preserving, it's worth repairing. You know, the there's a lot to be lost and a lot to be gained by by doing it well. Um, let me think of some more of them. Oh, for doctors, taking responsibility for harmful mistakes will get you sued. Not uncommon as a perspective, right? Um, it turns out that it's highly likely to go in the other direction. The data are, are not entirely clear, but there are many benefits for medical apologies, and that's a huge movement in the United States. Um, and one of the benefits is that um, the size of the settlements is smaller. And it's smaller because, we think it's smaller because people feel seen and heard and their pain is understood. So they don't need vengeance as much. Right? They, they want to be made whole. They want their family member to have the care they need and so forth. But, but they don't need to hurt somebody. Uh, you're a nice person, so you couldn't have done anything that hurt someone. Um, making an apology doesn't benefit you. It only helps the person who's hurt. Well, we've, we've already talked about that. I think it does benefit. Um, oh, here, how about this? If the harm happened before you were born, you don't have any responsibility to try to repair it, right? And that goes back to the um, original sins of the United States formation, right? And from where I sit, uh, benefiting from an unfair system is as good a reason to take responsibility for making a change as having caused it. So, you know, I think white people benefit a lot from those, uh, from that historical legacy and ongoing unfairness. And, and this seems like the perfect segue to ask you more about the relevance of, of your book, not just for... Uh, for people, relationship between people, but larger mm -hmm. organizations, um, mm -hmm. social justice, governments, uh, restorative justice, communities. Um, yeah, if you would kindly say more about that. You've been saying about uh, some, some about it throughout, but yeah, I would love to hear. I know you're passionate about this. I so would love to hear more from you. Thank you. Yeah, it, it matters to me a lot. Um, so I think this model can apply on any scale. It's the the steps are so common sense and so uh, such basic human actions that um, you know they're not mysterious and they can be applied to any number of other situations besides just between two people. And restorative justice is a case in point. The steps in a restorative justice practice are almost exactly the same as the ones in my model, which I didn't know when I started writing the book, actually when I finished writing the book, but now I volunteer for an organization that does restorative justice with um, young people, mostly young people who've um, committed what would be an offense. And the, the kids have to do the same th sorts of things. They have to listen to the person who is harmed. They have to, um, you know, make up for it. They have to uh, engage in some learning that will change the likelihood of their reoffending, And they have to write a beautiful apology letter, a thorough apology letter to the person they harmed and to the community who was also harmed by their offense. Um, 
there are governmental apologies uh, or apologies on behalf of a government that are quite stellar. Uh, not not all of them, but some. Uh, Justin Trudeau takes the prize, in my view. He's very good at doing all the steps, um, at least in several circumstances. He has been. I understand that he apologizes uh, so frequently that it's it's a sort of a joke, but <laughs> but he does it really well. So you know, play to your strengths. Um, and in terms of uh, racial justice, you know, someone recently said to me that my book is um, is a stealth social justice book. And uh, it's masquerading as a self-help book. And it is a self-help book. It's not a masquerade. But, um, but I really do believe that these, these four types of actions toward repairing something that's wrong are, 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 are access points for people who want to participate in um, dismantling racism or challenging white supremacy. Each of these is a way that a person could enter um, that process and participate. And it's hard for people to know where to go, what to do. And I think these steps could really help um, because they're clear. And nobody can, nobody, uh, can do all of them at once, right? But they are all necessary. So play to your strengths there too, right? There are people who can do some parts of this better than other parts, and all of it is needed. Thank you for... For all of that and, and, and the examples, and especially in the case of the restorative justice, which, um, as, as you were saying, the intention is different from making somebody right or wrong, but just really making the whole community whole with, uh, with, with, these, with these steps. Uh, yes. It's, not, it's, about, it's, a, it's about justice, but it's not about punishment. Yeah. Um, so... I'm wondering, actually, so we've been talking about how as individuals, as organizations, communities, perhaps, you would engage in these steps. Um, how would we teach others? For How would we teach children, for example, hmm. um, to apologize? Yeah, I, I, I talk a lot about parenting, but I always say first that it's the hardest job ever, and Whenever I give recommendations, it's not because I did it right. Um, <laughs> nobody does it all right. And, um, and I still, I do have some ideas, some suggestions. One is to refrain from that model of telling a child to go say, I'm sorry. And especially before the child knows what the words even mean. You know, we're teaching them to, to parrot things as if they're magic words. Um, we're teaching them to say things they don't mean, basically. And they might feel regret, but they might not. And they have to say these words in order to get out of trouble. Um, and some alternatives are um, emphasizing uh, empathy because children very young can learn empathy. Many children are naturally empathic, but they can be taught to pay attention to the impact on someone, uh, uh, the effect on someone else. And, you know, how do you think so-and-so feels about um, not having that toy, you know, look at her. How does it look like she feels? Um, and also teaching them, asking them the question, what would make this right? Is there a way you can make this right? Because kids have, have a very strong sense of justice often. It's fierce, you know, the rules are the rules in games and things like that. Um, and, and I think that's a very valuable thing to, to, to have as a, as a framework. 
Ah, so so I'm loving the distinction you're making between telling and uh, asking. So not to tell children mm. to go apologize, but asking them, "Oh, how would he or she or they feel? How uh, and and how would you make this right?" So really inviting them to to be curious um, instead of telling them. Yeah, thank you for that distinction. Uh, which, which is in a way actually, um, it parallels um, what you're outlining and uh, in in the four steps. What really works for the four steps, anyways? That the, the the crux of it, the heart of it, being curiosity and asking a question, instead of just saying I'm sorry, uh, which if you don't mean it, doesn't make any difference. But but but. Um, but actually asking, help me understand how how did I impact you? How did I hurt you? So so basically the same way that we would um, treat the other person. Like how how did I hurt you? Uh, the stance of curiosity, the stance of questioning, uh, teaching the same thing to the kids actually in a different way. Um, so so maybe remembering curiosity. It sounds like you know or, or asking. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. so um, would love to to also ask you. Oh, and, and, sorry, anything else you wanted to to share with us about no. teaching kids? Yeah. No, I think that's good. Yeah. Thanks. Um, sure. Um, so, so you were saying earlier um, that you know you've been a parent and teaching, and it's not because you you always did it right. You know, you you learned through your own mistakes, as we all we all we do. Uh, any examples um, um, from from apologies in your life or or the ones that you've known in your book from others that it kind of like they were a little wonky perhaps or things didn't qu- quite go right and then the, there there was something to learn from the process not going smoothly um, right um, there's a there's a couple in the book who encounter. Um, you know, a rough spot. And, um, one of them is, uh, is communicating with, with, with an old boyfriend in a way that, uh, is inappropriate. And, um, and, and she feels terrible right away. She, she doesn't know why she did it. She thinks it's terrible and he thinks it's terrible too. And so that's a big crisis. And, um, and she apologizes, apologizes, apologizes in those, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry ways. And, and feel so bad and um, and had to learn to step back and um, listen to him and give his feelings more room so that he could take the time he needed to be mad and to tell her again, you know, how much he uh, was hurt. And, um, and, and it took a long time. It took a long time of waiting. And that was a great example of her having to develop um, you know, a more solid sense of herself, of discovering why she had done that, you know, in, in psychotherapy as it happened. It, it needn't have been, but it was. And, um, and also she began to practice mindfulness and to establish uh, more balance for herself so that she could wait long enough. And it was hard. It was really hard for her to wait long enough. Um, it took a while. And and I encouraged her to give him all the time he needed. And he thought they would end up back together, but he didn't know when or how. So so there was a lot of 
first um, sort of noise and emotion that was crowding him from her because she felt so bad about it. And she had to handle that more on her own. That was a good correction. Mm. Thank you for that. I, I hear in that example of learning to give the other person space um, to, to feel their emotions and not try to, to direct it or crowd by apologizing and just making it okay and making it right. Mm -hmm. um, or by right. demanding forgiveness. So it's always an invitation for a conversation. It's not a demand for anything, much less forgiveness. Yeah, yeah. And, and you mentioned mindfulness, which is, of course, the other practice that's close to my heart. And I remember reading in your book that you've also recommended uh, to people to practice mindfulness and, and other practices like that in order to, to not be so reactive so that they can actually have a sense of stability to listen to the other person um, and sit with their own emotions. Um, so, um, exactly. Yeah, I'm curious what you know what what you've observed, what you've seen, and in terms of this practice and other practices that have really been supportive, especially in the first step that that is the challenging one. Right, it's it's a pretty common um, phenomenon in couples where um, the somebody has a has a complaint um, and the other person kind of can't take it in. They they react so quickly. Um, and often they react with, I'm so awful. You're, this is so terrible that I did this, um, and get caught up in their own bad feelings about it. Um, you know, mad and sad and withdrawn and you know, all kinds of stuff so that the person who had the original complaint is kind of left high and dry. The, the, that's never really dealt with because then we have to deal with, the person who's more upset, who's the original injurer, if you will, but still it's the person who's now really injured and feels terrible and needs reassurance that um, that his or her partner still wants to be in the relationship and things like that. And uh, so over time, in that kind of a setting, the the first person stops saying things because... It, it you know it doesn't go anywhere they don't get satisfaction and then they and they also don't want to hurt their partner so if if that reactive partner can learn to settle it down then he or she can listen and resolve things more effectively which is you know a pretty good idea so they don't have to accumulate all these unspoken unresolved problems ah so i'm hearing that the ability to actually be settled and non-reactive to listen um, allows for things to be resolved instead of them being accumulated in the relationship and for the person who might uh, who who's been injured and not to speak at all to just stop uh, speaking up about what the problems are and they start accumulating and people can can grow apart. Yes. Hmm. <laughs> But it's so interesting to to get a sense of all the links, how they connect. Um, so so um, since we still have time, I wanted to ask you, um, there are in your book, there are some um, 
areas that you're saying, um, you, you point out that where um, making an apology may may not be appropriate, um, and would be interesting uh, for me at least to hear uh, your your thoughts uh, about you know why you chose those and how they actually yeah they came up for mm-hmm. you and then mm-hmm. you you uh, you decided that. Yeah, those are worth mentioning in this process. Um, If the other person has asked you not to speak to them anymore, you know, if if the relationship has ended and and you've whether or not you've agreed, but if you've been asked not to speak to them again, you really must honor that. And your discomfort about something isn't isn't fair grounds for overriding their need and request. Another big example is if you don't mean it, don't do it. Um, people have asked me, should I apologize if I don't mean it? I don't think so. <laughs> I think that's a, it's an exercise in uh, confusion for both parties. Um, and I joke, I joke in that chapter, it's a very short chapter about times you shouldn't apologize, um, that you shouldn't apologize if you never make a mistake, which you know, I don't know anybody who never makes a mistake, but I know people who think they don't ever make a mistake. Um, sometimes you can't apologize because the person isn't available to you for one reason or another. It might be because they're um, dead. It might be because they are uh, n- were never known to you. It was a stranger. Um, and, you know, it might be because they are not able for medical or other reasons to engage in a conversation. Um so, so then you, you can't, uh, you literally can't do it. There are some other things you can still do. There are some rituals and, um, and you can do some vicarious restitution making also. Um, so I think there are some things you can do. You can take steps to prevent yourself from ever making this mistake again. Um, so sort of as if you were doing it on behalf of that person, even though you can't talk to that person about it. So the ritualistic aspect of it being very important. Yeah, thank you for pointing that out. Um, so, so Molly, what is the most important take-home message that if there's one thing you'd like people to remember from this conversation? I would like people to remember that um, when things have gone wrong between you and someone else, that doesn't have to be the end of the story. We we accept that as the end too easily, and 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 there may be a repair you can make, and it's almost never too late. Hmm. Thank you, pith and powerful. And I have one last question for you. Okay, I would love to ask you: um, Did writing this book affect you, impact you? And, and, and if so, how did writing this book change you? And there is a lovely section at the end of the book that I would like to invite you to please mm. read it for us, if you would. Mm. Well, I could not have written this at the beginning. Um, so it sort, of, it sort of shows how I've changed. It, this whole process became much more personal and deep for me, and more of a commitment um, than it had been when I started. Uh, 
Okay, this is the conclusion. Uh, I'm not going to read the whole thing. You can make things right. Thank you for spending time with me. Together, we've walked through stories of people struggling and stumbling and mostly finding their ways to greater integrity and more loving connections. I hope you've thought about your own relationships and the apologies that might heal breaches for you. I hope you remember the change in mindset that allows you to listen deeply to someone whose perspective is different from yours. The lessons in this book are old-fashioned and timeless. Listen with an open mind. Take responsibility for your actions. Speak with empathy and make things right with other people. As such, they are potential targets for mockery, particularly in a postmodern age that, val- that devalues sincerity and prizes ironic detachment. I have no defense against the claim of uncoolness. I'm going for something deeper because there is nothing like an apology, nothing so vast in its impact and yet so personal in its execution, so powerful and so small. Like others before me, I've probably written the book I needed to read. I'm not a particularly harmful person, nor have I led a painless, charmed life. Nonetheless, at this relatively seasoned stage of life, my own regrets seem to outnumber my grudges. After the years I've spent on this topic, what I'm left with is a tender call to arms, by which I don't mean weapons, but I do mean fierceness. My personal commitment to live the way I've described in this book is daunting, but seems crucially important. I imagine a world where we all seek common ground and common purpose more than we seek dominance and being right. I imagine taking the heavy stones of shame and resentment from our pockets and stepping more lightly toward one another. I imagine holding myself and my loved ones accountable in a more compassionate way. Thank you for letting me read that. Mm, Thank you so much for sharing that with us, Molly. Beautiful. Mm, It's... It's heartwarming, inspiring, um, so much of it, and especially to hear of your own personal commitment um, in your own life and in in your work um, to repair. Thank you. So let's, um, let's transition to opening our conversation up now which has been lovely and i've enjoyed it very much but oh me too i I think others (laughs) probably want to get in on it too so let's let's open um our conversation to the questions that are coming um from our audience so the first audience question is from stan and uh stan says sometimes people protect themselves with their pain and hold on to it. I have done this in the past. How can one apologize in relation to that? Protect themselves and hold on to their pain. Stan, do you mean the harm that someone else has done to you and you need an apology? Or do you mean, I'm thinking you mean holding on to 
a, a, a pain that prevents you from apologizing to someone. And um, yeah, I, I know. Because holding on to whatever we're holding on to is hard to stop, right? It's really hard to let go of wherever it is we're stuck. And whether it's holding on to pain or an old pattern of how we think of ourselves or an old way of reacting to other people or an old way of loving or leaving or all those kinds of things are really hard to change. Um, I, th I think what helps is uh, wanting, wanting the outcome more than you want to stay the same and hold on to something that you know. And the outcome is so rich of a good repair. You know, the, the, the downstream consequences are, you know, never ending. And so, um, so enriching that, that it seems worth it, even if it's really hard. The fact that you're even asking this question makes me think that you or whoever this is about is considering change and letting go of something that they've been holding on to. And that's promising, I'd say. Thank you, Molly. Here's the next question we have uh, from Cynthia. And Cynthia asks, how can you give a sincere statement of regret when you don't think you did anything wrong or cannot remember the action that the other person oh. is remembering? Yeah. Yeah, good one. Yeah, that's hard, Cynthia. I <laughs> I agree. It's really hard. Um, so sometimes the emphasis isn't uh, as much on regret as it is on empathy or on responsibility for repair. So, you know, if you care about someone's feelings and they say that you've hurt them, um, you know, you, you, you care, you, you might care, you might want to know what it is that they are feeling and, and how they were affected. Um, and, and, and you can sort of like with my brother, right? Um, if there is a way that you can find to identify a way, your contribution, I think that's worth claiming and naming. Um, but I also want to say that sometimes you often, I think we hurt people without having done anything wrong, wrong. You know, you're not really to blame for anything. It, it's because you're, um, because relationships are a contact sport. You know, we bruise each other by mistake all the time. And we often don't even know that we do it unless they tell us. Um, so, so wrong and blame makes sense in, in court, in an adversarial system, but it doesn't really make sense in a relationship. I mean, sometimes people are at fault, for sure. But what matters more is finding a way to um, reconnect. And, and the route to that is to understanding each other. Um, and your step first is to understand the other person. Hopefully, afterwards, it'll be your turn, and it will be important to share your experience of this with your, with your partner or friend or family member um, also. 
Thank you, Molly. I appreciate you emphasizing the the listening and the care and the curiosity, even if one doesn't remember, because clearly the other person remembers and, and they've been impacted in a particular way. And given the the the, the uh, other principle that you mentioned earlier of having humility, having the assumption that we have a blind spot, that we as human beings, we don't always perceive everything. Um, we just cannot possibly perceive everything perfectly. There, there, there's a lot right. of misperception. So, so right. And Cynthia, I forgot that you said that about not remembering. Um, because you know, there are, there are lots of different reasons one might not remember something that that actually happened. And you know, if it's a function of having been compromised, having your consciousness compromised. Um, you know, by substances or sleepiness or something, um, you know, that's one, that's one uh, kind of thing. If it's just that you don't, you really don't think this ever happened, um, that's a different thing. And, uh, you know, sometimes people say, well, I was drunk, that was the reason. And um, as if that exonerates them. And I, I think that's, it's not, it's not an effective uh it's not an effective defense, in my view. <laughs> um, but also, uh, just there's a case in point, which is, um, I'm sorry, I'm going to get political, uh, Brett Kavanaugh's um, confirmation hearings. Um, I wrote a column uh, in a news uh, publication that suggested that uh, there was another way he could handle um uh, Christine Blasey Ford's accusations, and and he and he may have said instead, "I don't remember ever hurting you, uh, but when I was young, I was frequently inebriated, and I frequently did, uh, you know, foolish and outrageous and sometimes uh, rough things, and if I if I hurt you." I am so incredibly sorry. I'm sorry for anybody who's been hurt like this, and I want to try to make this not happen to anybody else. If he had said that, we would, we, many of us would feel differently about him. That's more responsible, even if he doesn't remember it. Oh, thank you, Molly. That's, that hearing that feels so much better compared to <laughs> what we actually yes. heard. I mean, yes. that was so painful uh, yeah. to hear um, yeah. as a woman, especially. It was just so painful to hear. Yeah. Um, but and, you can take responsibility in a yeah. way without, without saying I did something wrong. Sometimes I can. Yeah. And, and as you were talking about memory and whether... You know, uh, we know that memory, there, there have been so many studies about memory not being perfect. And p different people remember, even if there's no drugs or inebriation involved, mm -hmm. still mm -hmm. memories can be implanted, can change by suggestion or just by, they just change. Memory is so unreliable. Um, right. So people might remember something very, very differently. Um, and it doesn't mean that something didn't happen or or that. It happened, but it just—it's perhaps the impact uh, that you're pointing out is, uh, and and caring and 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 having resolution in the relationship. Right, and if 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 you've if you've both thought about something over time, and you've 
and you've developed different stories about it, you know, because that's what we do. And every time we remember something, it becomes part of that story and the edges, the edges, you know, wear off. And the goal is to get together so that you can have the same story, (laughs) even if it includes more than one perspective. It's, uh, going forward, you don't have to be making, making, um, making a truth and a narrative out of separate experiences. You want to make it shared. Hmm. Ah, shared narrative. Well, that's an interesting concept that you just brought in also. So, so working towards a shared narrative and a shared perspective. And that's what you get going forward afterwards. Thank you. Well, let's move to the next question from Emlyn. Emlyn asks, can you talk about receiving a sincere apology? How do you open yourself when you feel very hurt, even if you believe the apology is sincere and the person feels regret? Yeah, yeah. Well, sometimes you're not ready. You're you're not ready to resolve it. You may be ready to hear about the other person's penitence or regret, but you're not ready to open yourself up to talk about your experience. You're too vulnerable or too raw or too hurt or too mad. And um, and time time can help. Uh, so so I I think it's it's your call when to do it and if if and whether to do it. Um, and I encourage you to take take your time. You may want to say, I can't do that yet. Um, try me again, you know, after the pandemic. Try, try me again in a month. Um, please come back in a month. and or, or I'll get back to you when I'm ready or something so that if the relationship matters to you so that you have a, you've left a little bridge out there between the two of you that, that you, can, you can cross or the other person can cross if you, if you want to later, um, rather than, you know, having to, to close things off entirely. But it, it is your call. I think the person who's been hurt gets to say when, when they want to have the conversation. You may find yourself softening more if if the other person is skilled at asking and listening and caring as opposed to feeling ashamed or regretful and wanting to get it off their chest and wanting to make it go away. You know, if you can in, if you can engage in a in a true um, revealing of your pain, you may feel differently by the end. Yeah, thank you, Molly, and I also appreciate how you pointed out the the you know keeping the bridge open. Um, it's it's uh, keeping the possibility alive, perhaps even if one is not ready for it just yet. Yeah, yeah. So, we'll have another question from Patrick. Patrick asks, "How does an individual perform step three in making amends for a racial offense?" Well, Patrick, um, do you mean an individual offense or do you mean a cultural 
systemic offense um, because they're different, right? Um, you know, if 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 you want to contribute to the larger societal uh, restitution and reparations, there are there are ways you can support that HR forty. Um, you can uh, you know develop what um, Michael Eric Dyson calls an individual reparations account uh, into which you deposit a certain amount of money every month and you use it to pay people who are underpaid um, or to pay for um, some uh, first in their family students in college, uh, all their textbooks. Or, you know, he, he, he has pages of things you can use these counts, accounts to contribute. Um, if you want to do individual monetary reparations, there's a way to do that too. Um, but, but if you've hurt someone by my making a racist error, um, then then it's the same as any other interpersonal hurt. And, and it's hard to own it because none of us wants to think that we're racist, right? But we all are, and also we make mistakes. So it's essential, I think, to, 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 um, to try and to, to take the feedback when you misstep and use that as an example, as an opportunity to learn so you can do better next time. And there's a big risk of um, stepping back too far after making a mistake or not even stepping in at all because you're afraid of making a mistake. And, and, and lots of us good-intentioned white people do that. And it's, um, it's really unfortunate because you probably have a lot to give. And so one of the planks in the, um, there's an organization called Showing Up for Racial Justice, uh, which is for white people. And, uh, and one of their planks is anti-perfectionism. So, so, so you, you, you have to kind of adopt this perspective that you're not going to get it right. Uh, so, but you should keep trying. And, um, and I don't, I don't mean, you know, be completely uncensored and an idiot. I mean, you know, take counsel from people and pay attention. <laughs> um, but but when you make a misstep, to learn from it and try again. I appreciate the lack of, expecting lack of perfectionism, expecting it to be messy. Um, yeah. It, um, in general, um, apologies to be messy and it's not going to be clean and a bow around it and just uh, so but as as an opportunity to learn and grow as a human being so thank you for pointing that out expecting lack of perfectionism yeah i love the things that you notice <laughs> it's really fun <laughs> we can do it's this good. all day molly you will just yeah. be talking and we'll just notice it's good yeah it's, it's, it's great so so the next question is from nirali who asks can you share the distinction between apologizing and appeasing over uh, and appeasing in parenthesis over apologizing mm. uh apologizing apologizing just so that Others don't get more angry uh, at them or cancel them. Yeah, that cancel thing, that's a problem. Um, yeah, I, 
Nirali, I I think if you're in a relationship with someone and you're afraid of their anger and so that you have to say I'm sorry, you know, just to make them not be mad anymore, that's a that's a problem. And it's not it's not a it's not a problem of apologies, right? It's a problem of intimidation or something, right? Um I I uh, I I think there is a public uh, kind of thing where people make public apologies so that they don't get um, you know canceled or you know really wrung out to dry in social media and uh, and you know fall from grace and they can't record their music anymore or whatever you know that it's it's a it is a problem um, but a lot of those public apologies are grossly inadequate, you know? And so if those people wanted to make a real apology, an effective apology, um, in order to avoid being canceled, you know, that, that, that would be good. I think that would be effective and worthwhile. Um, but in a, but I, and so I'm not sure which kind of situation you're, uh, asking about, and maybe it's somewhere in between, maybe it's some, you know, workplace or community place or something where, people have called you out for something and, you know, you feel like you kind of got to fall on your sword uh, to get out of it. And, you know, you use your own judgment about what the social rules are and the place where you are and, uh, and balance benefits and gains to yourself, of course. And, and, you know, you may say something insincere sometimes. Uh, If you do, you're, you're certainly not the first person to do that. Right. I think everybody does that to get it to get to survive in their culture sometimes. Um, but if it's in a real relationship, I, it, it sounds like it, it's at risk of becoming a habit of, uh, sort of putting, putting yourself in a one down position, um, erasing yourself a little bit. And that, that might not be the best habit for you. It might not be the best for your for the other person in the relationship either, um, because it's it's not good for anybody to have a partial a partial role like that, right? Like no nobody should be aggrieved all the time. Nobody should be penitent all the time. Um, and and then there's another whole there's another whole aspect of this, which is people who say I'm sorry all the time, and it's not anything about apologizing. It's just a little verbal tick. You know, people apologize to the chair when they bump into it. You know, it's not, it's, it's, a, it's a, it's a limitation in our language. I wish there were some other phrase we could use because um, it doesn't mean I'm sorry. It means I'm harmless or don't, don't mind me or something, you know. Um, and so, so I, I do think that's a habit that um, I'm trying to change that habit myself. I'm trying to say, instead of, I'm sorry, you, you waited, I made you wait while I went to the bathroom. I say, thank you for waiting. Um, I mean, I'm kind of sorry I inconvenienced them, but I'm more grateful. So I try, I'm trying not to say I'm sorry for things that aren't really apologies. I don't know if that helps or not.
There was there was a lot of ground that you covered there, Molly. I appreciate <laughs> the all the since since it's not live, uh, as, you know, interacting with the audience. Yeah. You know, you're trying to interpret: is it is it workplace? Is it a relationship where oh, maybe there's not no safety, and you're just trying to appease the person? And and is it is it over apologizing? In which case, maybe appreciating someone's patience or whatever is better. So I'm appreciating you're trying to cover all the possibilities in, in answering these questions. And these are great questions. Um, they are. There's a lot of territory to cover. So here's another great one um, coming in from an audience member, don't have a name. Um, how should we navigate systems that are set up to make you avoid apologizing? Like when you get in a car accident and you're never supposed to admit fault according to, to the insurance company advice? Yeah. Well, yeah. So maybe this is a, this is a situation where you can express that other kind of sorry that's about empathy and not about uh, blame or fault, right? It's... Um, because your because your humanity um, uh, requires you to say something, right? And if if you have caused harm to someone, even if you later are going to have to deal with your insurance company about it, you might really feel like you want to make something right with that other person, and you know that's a hard that's a hard call. Um, but I do know that in medicine. People, uh, you know, the old the old method was deny and defend, and and it didn't work so very well. And the current move toward accountability and compassion is uh, is much more satisfying to doctors, uh, medical personnel, and to patients and their families. And it does not lead. And taking responsibility for harm does not lead to uh, more malpractice. Uh, cost. So, so maybe those other systems will change too. Um, I'm also not sure that anything someone says at the scene of an accident is really, uh, can be used against them that way. Uh, I personally have been apologized to at the scene of an accident and the person later, uh, you know, resisted like crazy, uh, <laughs> or their lawyers did, uh, taking responsibility for it. So, uh, I don't know. I'm sort of in favor of the human side of it, but I, you know, I, I'm not, you know, I wouldn't want to make any um, recommendations about your wallet, you know. So, so I'm curious, Molly. Um, earlier, when you were saying that, that, what what would be a model of something to say, either in the medical example or in this example, that you're saying it appeals to one's humanity, but may not be implicating what may it sound like you mean like in a car accident yeah after a car accident yeah so i guess um uh, oh my god are you are you hurt you know at first right you're so hurt is there anything i can do to help you i mean expressing care for the other person's status is um indicated i'd say um and that's a human that's a human way to out, outreach to reach out as opposed to, you know, I didn't, I didn't do it. Um, 
So I don't know. It seems like you can be more present and care about it. Um, I don't know. There's the condolence, I'm sorry, which is another confusion, right? I'm sorry your leg got broken. I'm sorry you lost your job. Things that don't have anything to do with the person who's speaking, right? And that's a limitation of language too, right? That's not an apology, but it's a kindness. So maybe that's an expression about somebody else's harm, the harm to someone else. Yeah, I appreciate you talking about showing up with your humanity, with care, in whatever way possible. So however it might actually, this, this presence might actually show up linguistically, or perhaps taking a cue from that. Yeah. And we've come to our last question from Lawrence. Uh, Lawrence asks, is trust an essential prerequisite for apologizing? Or is trust something that potentially arises and gets cultivated through the steps of this process of engaging uh, in making an apology? Chicken or the egg? Uh, yeah, both. I'd say, yeah, both. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, I think restoring trust is the, is the primary, out, primary goal. It's the primary outcome of a successful, effective apology. Um, if trust has been broken in the harm, um, but often the the harm isn't a isn't a challenge to trust. It's the trust isn't really at risk, so it doesn't always apply. Um, but but I think you do have to have a little bit of trust in something to begin a good apology, and it it may be a trust in the relationship or in the other person, or maybe a trust in yourself to be a responsible person who can handle this um you know take responsibility for for harm or mistakes um so yeah so i think restoring trust is great and i think that's what apologies can do if that's what's needed um but it isn't always needed sometimes the trust is still there Appreciate that. So it can work either way. Sometimes the trust isn't needed. Sometimes it's already there. Some, it can be built. So it it depends. It, yeah, appreciate that. And well, I think we're coming to the end of our time. This has been so, so rich, Molly, to speak with you, to learn from your rich experience and expertise in this very, very important area um, of not just human relationships, but also organizational uh, relationships, governmental. What an important topic and what a um, huge gift that you've given all of us by, by your work, by your passion in this subject and writing this book. So uh, it's a wonderful book and there's so much more in there that we haven't covered tonight. So thank you so much for sharing of yourself in this conversation. Thank you, Nikki. I, I loved your questions and I love the questions from the people who wrote in questions. They were really insightful and important questions. And, um, and it makes me really happy that we're talking about these things. Um, and 
Thank you, uh, CIIS. Thank you, Nikki. Thank you, Molly. Thank you for listening to the CIIS Public Programs Podcast. Our talks and conversations are presented live in San Francisco, California. Podcast production is supervised by Kirsten Van Cleef at CIIS Public Programs. Audio production is supervised by Lyle Barrer at Desired Effect. The CIIS Public Programs team includes Kyle DiMedio, Alex Elliott, Emlyn Guinea, Jason MacArthur, and Patty Fort. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe wherever you find podcasts. Visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs.